This is war. The four major networks again unite to present the second program in a new radio series for wartime America. Tonight, the White House and the war. Mr. Paul Muni is our principal voice. This is concerning a home on Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, in Washington, District of Columbia. It is also concerning every home in the world. For in the fighting of this war, and in the winning of this war, this is the house that will mean so much to people now, and to their children after. Mark you countrymen what name we call this old house standing a cop's whistle away from the downtown traffic of a busy city. We know it as the White House. A house, not a building, not the White Mansion, not the White Palace, but the White House. That's what 130 million of us Americans call it, and we ought to know. We own it. It's a handsome place, and when we see it from a tourist bus or from across the lawn or from one of the surrounding buildings, it has a grace that makes us wish we knew it better. Makes us wish that we could meet the man who lives there, could drop in and say hello to him sometime. Perhaps we may one day, but not right now. He's busy, very busy. There's a war on. Do not enter. No pedestrian traffic. Use north side of the street. That's a sign outside the White House, a sign of the times. These being times of watchfulness and of restricted movement. There are barricades at points and sentries walking up and down all day and night. Alert. The bayonets and their expressions fixed. And now and then, relief. Time's up. I'm your relief. Okay. It's all yours. Yeah, looks like the boss is still awake. Yeah. I guess he works late these nights. I'll see. Well, me for some grub. Good night. Good night. Sentries, yes. Policemen, yes. The loaded rifle and the watchful eye. The measured tread, but still the house looks out benignly on the city looks with a look of quiet trust upon the heads of scurrying Americans busy with the business of war. Serene, it seems. Serene as the face of an old friend who has lived long and seen much. But inside, it's not so serene. It's busy from the front door on. The ushers and the servitors and the secretariat, the secret servicemen, the callers with appointments, the full day around the clock, busy with pressing matters, busy with decisions, busy with the concerns of life and death, and the unspoken burden of the greatest struggle of all time. It is a place of grace, this. The marble floor, 
Red rugs. The president's seal in yellow bronze inlaid in stone. The tall mirrors on the east and west walls. The slender columns. The red drapes on... And suddenly a dog coming out of nowhere. Fala, the black Scotty with the run of the house. The first dog of the land. Making friends with everybody and anybody. Hello, Fala. Hello, boy. How are you, Scotty? The busy place. The human place. The place of messages and conferences. Transoceanic phone calls. The place of instructions going out and reports coming in. The place of cabinet meetings and press conferences and the mapping of grand strategies. And in the midst of it all, in the midst of the hard work and the heavy going, at the core of the struggle, deep down, deeper than the reckoning of any of us who have never had the destinies of peoples to think about at stilly hours of the night, deeper than all ordinary understanding is the loneliness, the awful loneliness of high responsibility, the loneliness of men accountable to children's children and already standing in the cold and glaring light of history. A great house this, a very great house. What has made it great? What makes a man great? Trouble, adversity, problems, struggle. Once there was trouble, very near the house there was trouble, only eight miles away. The rumble of artillery moving up in the night. Campfires in Virginia's hills. At the window in the house, looking southeast, Abraham Lincoln could see the light of the fires. Mr. President. What is it, John? I put today's reports from the War Department on your desk in the study. Thought you'd want to see them before you go to bed. It's rather late now, Mr. Lincoln. I know it is, John. I wonder, is it too late? Tonight I look out this window at the campfires of the Confederate armies across the river in Virginia. They've blockaded the Potomac. Washington may fall after only these three months of war. One terrible fact, John. The people have not yet made up their minds that we are at war. Until they do, there's no hope. <laughs> great house, a very great man. Echoes of the hour swirled about the colonnades. Jefferson Davis, Sumter, Lee, the draft, the cabinet, the press. The lonely Lincoln heard them all, saw messengers, orderlies, military, naval aides, senators, congressmen filling its halls with little business and big talk. Talk about how they'd knock off the rebels in no time. Talk about the finishing the job by Sunday. Invitation to come on out and see for yourself. Bring the wife and kiddies. Plenty of room in Tom's carriage, but we'll make it a holiday. Big time. 
Go out and steal his show at Manassas. Sunday, July 21, 1861. Past the house they went. Lunch baskets, crinoline gowns, parasols. Washington out to see that great show at Manassas. Confidently, they rolled past the house, past its brooding tenants, sitting beside the newly installed telegraph off the main hall, and waiting all that Sunday, waiting for the victory they had gone to cheer at. Bull Run. Any news yet, Mr. President? We're holding the press at the Star. I've been trying to contact McDowell's headquarters all afternoon, Mr. Wilson. No word. I'll try it again, Bascom. Nothing, Mr. President? Nothing, eh? No, sir. I got my story all written anyway, just waiting for confirmation. You want to hear it, sir? Well, now, uh, Wilson, Victorious just rout of enemy by valorous federal armies. Today, the army of the... General McDowell, sending, sir. What is it? I'm taking it down, sir. There it is, Mr. President. They whipped us. It's damned bad. the jaunty complacency then. What was Bull Run? Was it Bunker Hill? Bladensburg? Havana Bay? Pearl Harbor maybe on another Sunday later on? A lesson? Easy? Is it ever easy? Through storm and defeat and tears, the man in the great house was to leave these words there. Now we're whipped again. And these? I'm as nearly inconsolable as I could be and live. And this to say again on a later day. We cannot escape history. We will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. Yes, a very great house. And later generations knew well whom to honor and dishonor. And the presidents of later generations, living and working in that same house, knew other trials, other fiery trials, listened to thunders rolling in from foreign skies, from skies removed by many curving distances from Washington. The sudden thunder of a warm night in Havana Bay that, too, was heard in the great house by a man from Ohio named McKinley. Remember the Maine, they said, and it was remembered. Was there honor 
or dishonor in this thing, the people later would decide, would form their own opinion. A generation afterward, a little less than 20 years on a night in April, still another man looked out, looked out those windows over the lawn and over Washington and thought heavy thoughts, the heavy, lonely thoughts of high responsibility. He looked and turned and went back to the papers on his desk and finished writing an address to Congress. When he was through, he signed his name to it. Woodrow Wilson. And then he read over what he had written last. It is a fearful thing to lead this great, peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more precious than peace. And we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts. To such a task, we shall dedicate our lives and our fortunes with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth. God helping her, she can do no other. generation later, and another president works late into the night, works late inside the rooms whose walls have eavesdropped mutely on so much that had to do with making new worlds and with repairing old ones. The 32nd president, the fifth to serve in wartime. Those who know this president by more familiar names than Franklin Delano Roosevelt these men who know the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy and what he was before he came to live in the White House, they know that he's better trained for war than any president before him. They know the story goes a good way back to days before the First World War. Sure, he was an obscure state senator from New York when he accepted the position of assistant secretary of the Navy in the administration of Woodrow Wilson. That was in 1913, but the obscurity didn't last long. Why, I can remember the day when the sailors in the Navy... That sounds like a believe it or not. Seems like somebody should have thought of that before. No statistics available on how many sailors saved their own lives because of this order, but you can be sure there were plenty. Yes, sir, Mr. Roosevelt was an idea man from the start. He was more than that. Now, take that afternoon back in 1915 when he was out inspecting the brand-new submarine on the West Coast. It was one of those big... Uh, Everything ready for the trial run, Lieutenant? Yes. We're just waiting for Mr. Roosevelt to go ashore, sir. Oh. How does the crew feel? They pardon, sir? I say, how does the crew feel? Pretty... Pretty low, sir. Yeah. Guess they all heard about the F-4 sinking yesterday. Yes, sir. They're uneasy about the looks of this ship. I'm afraid so, sir. Big pardon, Lieutenant? Yes. Captain says you may prepare to get underway. But has Mr. Roosevelt come up yet? No, sir. Seems like Mr. Roosevelt's staying below deck, sir. Why? Staying below deck? He's taking the trial run with us. He is? Oh, yes, yes sir. sir. And I guess if this pig boat's good enough for him, it's good enough for us, huh, sir? <laughs> <laughs> 
But do you know the story of the wooden submarine chasers? No, I don't know that one. Well, in 1917, our Navy didn't have enough sub-chasers to send across the Atlantic. Bigger boats couldn't be built in time, and there wasn't enough steel anyway. So Roosevelt had yacht yards from Maine to Florida turn out wooden mosquito boats. Plans drawn in March, contracts let in April, deliveries in June. 400 of them before they got through. What about the North Sea Mine Barrage? That was another job. Its object was to bottle up the German U-boat fleet in its base by mining the North Sea. It was Roosevelt's idea and looked good on paper. And did Mr. Roosevelt's plan work? Ask the sailors at Kiel in 1918. Ask the sailors who felt the noose of the British blockade tightening every day and found they had another weapon turned against them. They have brought us to sail at midnight, Carl. I've heard. The U-17 has not been heard from. I know. U-32 tried to get through, failed. I know that too. The enemy has laid their mines so close, a herring couldn't get through. Yes, yes, I know. Well, what are you going to do about it? I will not sail tonight. Good for you. How about the others? They will not sail. Good, good. Fighting men is one thing, but fighting mines... Let the admirals figure a way to clear the sea of these mines. Until they do, I will not go. It may mean the firing squad. It will not mean the firing squad. We are too many. Ah, we shall see what the captains and the admirals say when they find there is not a sailor in Kiel who will go to his death that way without a chance to fight. Let the admirals clear the sea first. The admirals never got around to it. There were so few admirals and so many sailors. That was how the mutiny started at Kiel on November 4, 1918. Experience? Ask the men who knew him over there. Statecraft? There were lessons to be learned. He looked on at Versailles. He came back back to millions of Americans who got to know him, knew the young man running for vice president in 1920, campaign trains, speeches, and the people listening, farmers, housewives, businessmen, teachers, men from the factories and the waterfronts and the plains. The people listened. He was a young man to run for vice president at 38. Everybody said he was going places. Nothing was going to stop him. And then, it happened. It happened one day after he went swimming with his children in the icy water of the Bay of Fundy. He was stricken. It came like a stroke of lightning out of the summer sky. Suddenly, he was alone. Alone in the black loneliness of doubt and questioning and wonder. It rained in Campobello. Fog crept down from the Grand Banks and lay on the water and on the pines and on the gravel beach and on the lodge. The fog lay like a blight upon the bay and it was gray and dank outside the window of young Roosevelt's bedroom. Off in the channel he could hear the bellboy ringing. 
mournfully, disconsolately. He learned the feeling then of loneliness and how, how to take bad news and make the best of it. He learned that he could laugh still in the somber sessions of the heart, that he could make decisions still and fight back at an enemy that struck without warning. He listened to the bellboy in the channel, and his thoughts went out to where that undecided and unhappy boy pitched this way and that, tossed by the currents of the tide. Was this the end of a career? Was this a life bedridden to the last? Was this the knell for all a young American's high-reaching hopes? Where would he be a month from now? A year from now? Ten years from now? Pennsylvania Avenue, the slender columns, the mirrors in the long hall, the yellow bronze of the presidential seal gleaming on the floor, the president in his house, and anguish, and loneliness there too, the great burden, the great responsibility, the great people watching. Was it easy? Is it ever easy? You, mister. You, madam. You were watching the man in the great house. You tell it. Well, the first day in the office, there was the bank holiday. The very first day? Yes, sir, right off the bat, the hmm. first day. And was I As if the depression was. wasn't bad enough already. Oh. Remember how some of the papers got so tired of depression they began printing a section called Good News? Yeah. It's a good uh, idea, too. Much. They made up names like National Recovery and Works Progress. Oh, <laughs> wasn't it around that time that the Philippines got their independence? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I thought so. Wasn't much independence kicking around after that, though. Hmm. Long about then, Italy decided to... Civilize Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. civilize it. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we knew it, Hitler marched into the Rhineland. Yeah, and the next thing, he teamed up with Mussolini to civilize Spain, too. It wasn't long after that when Austria returned to the Reich. Uh, 
And then the hurricane on the East Coast. Remember that? Mm. I was on Long mm. Island that day, and believe me, I'll never forget mm, it. That was awful. Yeah, then the monkey business at Munich. Yeah, that slogan, uh, peace in our time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, peace in our time. That must have given the Chinese a laugh. Remember the Sunday roto sections? Nanking and Canton and Hankow and Ruins. Yeah, a and remember, we were neutral. Oh, sure, the Neutrality Act. And peace, peace in our in time. Our time. <laughs> yeah, and George, what about that thing they called a phony war? Oh. That didn't turn out so funny, did it? <laughs> no. You mean the sitzkrieg. Yeah. You know what I heard? I heard they had oysters and champagne right in the Maginot Line. Oh, I no, they yeah. did. I heard that. But I don't imagine Hitler and his boys like that uh, round trip to Russia. No, I'll bet they don't. I remember last Thanksgiving. After dinner, my husband and I took the children to see Kitty Foyle. They had a newsreel, too. There were two polite little men from Japan walking up the steps of the State Department. Yeah, everybody was talking last November about how Japan would be a pushover. Yeah, sure, they were talking right up to that Sunday at Pearl Harbor. Do you know what I think? I think we've done enough talking for a while. What now? The house knows. There's a war all over the earth. We cannot escape history. Again, the great house and the man in it. The anguish, the loneliness, the adversity, the responsibility. This time, the greatest struggle of mankind. Criticism? Sure. That's the American way. Trouble? Huh. Is it ever easy? An unending series of crises. Now, the big one. Now, the biggest job of all. And the man in the great house is ready. A man who will repay a treachery. An angry man. A fighting man. Experience from another struggle. Behind him, 130 million ready to, each with an individual responsibility. Did we hear someone say, But what can I do? What can you do? Listen, there's a kind of simple ratio to what goes on outside the White House. Simple as the rule that two and two make four. Here's the ratio. One first-class rumor monger equals a pair of Nazi spies. One top-notch appeaser is worth a personal representative of the Duce. One guard who doesn't watch zealously all entrances and exits is the same as a sentry who falls asleep and lets the enemy in. One guard who doesn't watch inflammables on a liner is worth four torpedoes from a Nazi submarine. One American who hates Jews or Negroes or Catholics is worth a whole trained staff of experts in the office of Propaganda Minister Goebbels. Ask the East Wing and the West Wing of the White House. Ask the Lawn and ask the Iron Gate. They know, they know the answer. They know why the man is working in the Great House tonight. They know that this is war.
ask you to join us again next Saturday evening when the four major networks bring you the third program of this new series, Uniting the Resources of American Radio. We thank the Hollywood Victory Committee for the appearance of Mr. Paul Muni, who was narrator tonight. The original musical score was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. The program was directed by Norman Corwin. Next Saturday, Frederick March and Lieutenant Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., United States Navy, will appear in a program entitled Your Navy, written by Maxwell Anderson. This is war. <laughs> This program came from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.